Bandwidth for Cloth Talk is provided by the Scott History Project. Join us at www.scotthistory.net. Cloth Talk, number 16. New York area, New York area, New York area. I'm Tim Hall, and with me online is Ben Killen. And Chris Brightwell. Uh, how's it going, guys? Going pretty good. I'm doing all right. All right. Well, we've got a great show lined up, I believe. We've got Bill Moranen, the uh, New York OA trader himself. And he's a fascinating individual to talk to, knows quite a bit about uh, New York issues. He is the editor of the uh, Blue Book for New York State. And uh, it's just, uh, I, I guarantee it's something you, that you'll enjoy. Uh, ben, what have you been up to lately? Oh, nothing much. Um, same old stuff, you know, working hard and then coming home and trying not to work at all is pretty much the way I go. I, I was, <laughs> this is not relevant at all, but I was talking to a coworker of mine and I was like uh, talking about how he does a lot of work at home for some reason. I don't know why he does that, but I like refuse to do that. There was one day that I did that and I kept it a big secret because I don't want anyone at work to think that I'm going to ever even think about doing work while I'm at home. Okay, so the secret is Ben loves to do work at home. No. No? It's not true. Okay. And, Chris, we know you do nothing but work for the United States Army 24-7. That's not true either. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of what I do, but that's between that and school and married life and working on the wiki and everything else, I stay busy. Be sure to check out our Cloth Talk website at clothtalk.com. And you just click on the little Cloth Talk Merit Badge there. Also, while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our e-newsletter. Um, what this does, there's a little box on the uh, web page there where you can just put your email address in, hit enter or click the button there, and it does a little verification page. And then what you've done is signed up for our email newsletter. And what, what happens is we'll send you an email every single time we post a new Cloth Talk episode. We're not going to spam your inbox or anything like that. We just want uh, a way for, for you to sort of remember that we have a new Cloth Talk episode without having to come to the website or anything like that. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes, uh, which is easy. Just search for Cloth Talk, and it'll be one of the highest-ranked uh, results there, uh, and that's pretty easy. But uh, definitely subscribe to the show or the email newsletter. That way we can have you back next week if you're listening this time. Chris, I've been watching the wiki, and I know that there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of work going on in the wiki. Uh, t- tell me what to, what's, what's up on, on that side of the house these days. Uh, well, right now it's mostly been me and Ben working on uh, the architecture and some templates and some things like that to make it easier for everybody else to come and, and do their page. So we've got uh, we've got several templates set up, uh, kind of as an example of what we would would think a good entry would uh, manifest itself as. And right, uh, right. What kind of tips do you have for our users to get in there? Well, I was trying to come up with a good you know tip number one, but I was I was sitting with a fellow patch trader the other night, and I was showing him around the wiki, and I was showing him how anybody could sign up, and how anybody could edit, and how anybody could add content. And his initial question was. Well, how do you make sure that it's good content? And I said, well, let me show you the history benefits of this. So I think what I want to show you today is, or talk to you today about is a little bit of, of how the wiki keeps up with who makes what changes and how often they've been changed. So if you go to the wiki, if you go to scouthistory.net and you click on the left side where the little wiki logo is, 
there's a recent changes list. On the left side, there's a link that says recent changes. And when you click there, it'll show you all of the changes that have been made in the last day or the last three days or the last seven days. You can sort of configure it just to, to filter it down a little bit. And you can see who's working on which articles, and you can see which new articles have been created. So if you wanted to join an actively edited article, and that's one way to do it. Um, and then if you go to an, indiv an individual article, at the top of the page, there's a history link next to edit and all that other stuff up there. It says history. And if you click on that, you can actually see every individual version of that page, and you can see who submitted that version. So if you go in and you look one day and you say, wow, you know, there's this piece of information about my troop or there's this piece of information about my council or my lodge, and it's just incorrect. Not only can you edit it, but you can go back and you can see who made that edit, and you can contact them to make sure that either you're not wrong or to help them not fix your correction so that the, the incorrect information stays out. Not fix your correction. I love that that terminology. <laughs> Not fix your correction. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I've, yeah. You've fixed a lot of my corrections, especially in spelling uh, over the years. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay. uh, actually, it's a, it's a very valid concern, and I, and it's one that that I know I don't address very often, and I know probably hasn't been addressed on the show. But there are balances and there are checks to make sure people aren't putting junk on this site for for all the lodges or for all the patches to kind of help make sure that all of the data is accurate and correct. Okay. And you could enter yourself as a topic, correct? Chris Brightwell could have a a page himself that has his uh, collection and his needs list and his contact information yep. and yep. and all of that as well. So it's not only about your troop, but it's about yourself and, and the collection that you are uh, attempting to uh, secure. Yep, and like I said last time, if you have any problems or any questions, you can either just create a page and I'll see it and I'll help you work out your problems, or you can email me, uh, chris at clothtalk.com, and we'll get it sorted out and we'll get you online and doing what you need to do. Well, with me here online is Ben Killen and uh, the New York trader himself, uh, Bill Moranen. Bill is a trustee of the Ten Mile River Scout Museum and as well as a Blue Book editor of New York. Uh, Bill, it's a pleasure to have you with us here on Cloth Talk. Great to be with you guys, too. Cool, yeah. I've, I've uh, sort of checked out your blog for a little while. It's really cool. You do a great job of, of keeping it updated. Uh, for those that haven't ever checked it out, it's nyoatrader.com. Uh, really good stuff. Even though I live in the New York area now, there's plenty that I don't know about... Um, collecting an OA here, but your your blog is an incredible resource, um, so uh, definitely appreciate you doing that. Uh, how did you get started uh, on that project, and when did that sort of start? Well, uh, for, for a number of years, I mean, I've subscribed to a number of the trading publications, going back to ASTA, the American Scout, Scout Trading Association, and the National Scout Collective Society, uh, the Western Pen Pennsylvania Traders Association, all of which I guess have uh, either merged or gone away and, you know, have, um, I, I guess is now represented by ISCA, the International Scout Traders Association. And one thing I always did look forward to was their uh, newsletters, normally quarterly. I think when you were speaking uh, to Terry in your last podcast, Terry Grove, you had mentioned, uh, you know, looking at one of the more recent issues. And, I mean, th they've come a long way over the years, certainly, but it was still only something that... Uh, came around on a quarterly basis and 
while anticipated, uh, never uh, never lasted very long, and would seem to be able to go through it pretty quickly. And I, there was another New York collector, John Papp, uh, from the Albany area, who had tried to put together an email list for a short term of some uh, short time for some New York State collectors, and you know that lasted. He put it out every two weeks or a month or so. Basically, people would submit emails, and he would uh, send them out uh, uh, to people on the list. And you know that, that was one way, to, a little bit more immediate way to uh, to get information available. Um, I guess somewhere in, in the between Blue Book two and three, I took over the New York State uh, editorship from Bob Connor uh, when Bob was uh, uh, well, a bit under the weather, certainly at the time, and has since passed. But he, um, uh, you know, there was no, nothing between the two issues of. Uh, uh, or between the two years between issues of the Blue Book and the quarterly issues of the, uh, you know, one of the scouting uh, trading publications, any way to find information. Uh, certainly when OA Images came out, that was a, another big step uh, in, I guess, the more immediacy of information, you know, being able to find things out on the spot and being more aware of uh, what was happening. But, you know, at least I felt that there was still no place, at least for New York collectors, uh, to no central point where they could find out information. I know there have been some publications specialized. I, I know I think uh, one was down in Florida years ago. I don't even know if it's still published uh, with some Florida traders, but there was no, uh, you know, nothing here in the New York area. So I guess with all that as background, I had been keeping some checklists on uh, a website of New York State issues, and I had been exposed to blogs. Um, um, outside of scout trading, and you know, there's uh, and any number of subjects. If you can think of a subject, there's uh, dozens of blogs probably on that subject. So I decided to start doing something. Started it on Blogspot, which is one of the, uh, I guess, probably the biggest uh, blogging engine, if you will. And then eventually uh, migrated over to you know my own site, New York OA Trader. Okay, yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's it's really sort of interesting. The way this this hobby that we have just sort of keeps evolving, and um, even though I would say it's a pretty low tech hobby, it's it's pretty cool the way that technology has played such an integral role in like the new face of of patch trading and scout collecting and stuff like that. And definitely, I would say that with your uh, website, you're on the leading edge of that. So. So uh, uh, definitely thanks to you for what you do online, and and it's it's really cool. I'll, also, I, I I scolded myself uh, after last episode because I meant to mention uh, John Pinnell's new blog. Uh, well, actually, it, maybe it's not all that new, but it's new to me. I just recently discovered it. John Pinnell is the guy that runs OAImages.com, and he's got a blog there. If you just go to blog dot oaimages.com you can check that out and that's that's another really cool one too um he's he's of course got his finger on the pulse of of new patches and scout trading uh so he always has really cool insights on there as well um and i know uh, bill i think that you're you sort of frequent that page as well um, yeah I, I usually read his uh his blog I, I try and keep up on what's going on on the different scouting blogs particularly when i can find when there aren't too many uh or at least collecting-related blogs. There aren't too many available yet. John, you, you can also reach his blog from his homepage, uh, you know, just oaimages.com. There is a link. So if someone doesn't remember the URL, they can find it that way. But John put a post out just a couple of days ago uh, where he was, uh, I guess, in a f soliciting contributors to uh, 
potentially post to his blog to do somewhat something similar to what I do for New York State, and he would allow individuals to, uh, or potentially at least allow individuals to post information about new issues or new discoveries. Uh, uh, I guess he was hoping maybe to get some blue book editors. Uh, I don't know if he's gotten any responses back, but I think it's uh, certainly a good way to involve uh, other collectors in uh, in dissemina- disseminating information, you know, f- throughout the hobby, and um, uh, <laughs> it helps fill in those voids where. Um, uh, you know, you, a lot of people may not have a lot of uh, advantages or, or a lot of options to trade uh, otherwise through the mail or maybe buying and selling on eBay. But uh, unfortunately for some, uh, uh, not everyone is like the Northeast where we seem to have a tradery within a couple, three hours drive every, uh, uh, you know, every month or every other month, uh, certainly half a dozen or eight over the course of the year, probably within a, a two-hour drive of the New York City area. So we're a little bit fortunate here, but for some people, you know, this is a good way to get information and certainly more immediate than, uh, uh, you know, it coming out in a, you know, in the and it's a great publication. I subscribe to it. I'm a life member of the of ISCA, so I'm not putting it down, but it only comes out quarterly and it's only as good as what people send them. So I think, uh, you know, some people, you know, may, may get a little... Uh, uh, in the old fanzine days from science fiction terminology, ego boo was the term, but, uh, you know, just get a little ego jolt maybe from seeing their name online, from being a contributor, and, you know, maybe a few more people will get information out, and other collectors will find out about uh, things that they'd be interested in collecting if they only knew they existed. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. And and actually, speaking of, of traderies in the New York area, um, there's a few coming up soon. I think actually one this weekend that probably will happen and be over with before we post this on Sunday. But uh, there's another one that you're heavily involved with at Camp Alpine. Would, did you want to tell us about that some? Sure, certainly. Yeah, there is one, uh, well, I guess it'll be in the past, will have just recently been held in Queens. Swanakee Lodge 49 holds one typically the first weekend in November. But the one I'm actually the advisor to, uh, Shashuga Lodge, uh, number 24 uh, from Brooklyn here, runs uh, a tradery. We'll be having our 11th tradery, annual tradery, held at Camp Alpine on Saturday, uh, November 18th. Um, as a matter of fact, just uh, earlier this evening, I sold out the last table. We have 46 tables that we're squeezing into the facility. They're all sold out now. So we look to uh, have a good group of uh, of collectors and traders from uh, from the Northeast uh, who will be attending. And in addition to that, the lodge is also running the same weekend in Camp Alpine a uh, an Indian event seminar uh, that will involve uh, outfitting, um, dance, uh, song singing, you know, songs and uh, and crafting uh, for usually somewhere between 150 and 200 people from throughout the Northeast. And Ken Hood, who is the is the advisor to that event. Information about both uh, events are available on the Shishuga Lodge uh, webpage, um, which is shishuga, S-H-U-S-H-U-G-A-H dot org. Uh, and the Indian event seminar it runs from Friday, November 17th through Sunday, November 19th. The Traderie is a one-day event on November 18th in Warback Arena at Camp Alpine. All right, Ben, uh, can I suggest you go there and do some Christmas shopping for your friends in Alabama? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's on it's definitely on my calendar of thing to go to and maybe maybe we'll even take cloth talk on the road again and try to get uh a few people um you know in 
in the flesh while they're trading. Uh, yeah, take trade. plenty of cash too. Okay, for your <laughs> friends in Alabama, you know that Christmas. You, your birthday's like Christmas Day or the day before Christmas. So, well, well. Yeah, yeah, it is. So maybe I'll just spend all my money on Christmas. I mean, uh, birthday presents for myself. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I, I don't have too much to to go around as far as as that goes. But yeah, we'll make do. <laughs> Bill, tell us a, a little bit about the issues of Shashuga Lodge Twenty Four. I know that uh, uh, you're one of the oldest lodges. I mean, uh, with a low number like Twenty Four, and uh, what's the hardest patch to get for someone say that's an ordeal member that's uh, wanting to get going in collecting Shashuga? Well, the, the hardest patch is probably the uh, the R1, which is a, a felt uh, three-inch round from uh, from 1948. That's probably the single hardest patch. Uh, it was actually issued for a large uh, conclave or a large fellowship weekend, although it's become, uh, I guess, so intertwined in collecting history, it's been listed as a NOAC uh, contingent issue, uh, so to speak, is a NOAC issue from the lodge, and although it may have also been used on the NOAC event, it was originally issued for a uh, for a lodge fellowship weekend, a lodge conference, uh, as opposed to uh, the National Order of the Arrow conference. That's probably the single most difficult piece that at least collectors, um, uh, you know, nationally would be looking for from within the lodge. Shashuga has always had a, or at least in its early stages, Shashuga has always had a very strong chapter uh, program. Uh, we're currently down to two chapters, but uh, uh, as late as the mid to late 70s, Shishuga had 11 operating chapters. And chapter structure going back to summer camp days in the early 50s, certainly. And as a matter of fact, Gene Berman, who will be at the Shishuga Traderie and who runs the is the advisor for the Swanakee Traderie, actually just recently uncovered, uh, I guess, which probably would be the single most difficult piece, a second chapter patch probably from the 1930s that would predate any of the original uh, uh, Order of the Arrow items from uh, uh, some of the Lodge items from Shishuga Lodge. And I actually have a picture of that on the blog uh, uh, for anyone who's interested in looking at it. It would be, you can check onto the Shishuga category, and uh, it's a post on second chapter. Wow. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I do follow your new discoveries, and there's been several of them in New York in the in the past year that that I've noticed that is uh, just uh, just pretty cool. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at it right now as we talk, and and I see uh, the first known contingent item is an aluminum neckerchief slide uh, with a flying blue heron and a red WWW 1940. And uh, yeah, that was uh, Ron Aldridge, I believe, Doctor Ron Aldridge. Uh, from Texas had put, uh, I believe it's two volumes out of the, um, I believe the title was, or something to the effect at least, The Order of the Arrow at National Events. And he started uh, listing, you know, each and every uh, uh, piece issued at a national event, you know, starting with just what was issued by national, so to speak, or in some cases by the host lodge. And then uh, I believe it goes through 1990 or so. It hasn't been updated recently. He'd probably need a volume for each year uh, for more recent NOACs. But that was the first uh, contingent piece, at least he was aware of, that was issued for a specific NOAC. Uh, there were some host items issued, I guess, earlier than that, but that was the first uh, contingent piece, at least uh, anything that he's he was able to find. And I understand that collection is now part of the Las Vegas Scout Museum. Oh, wow. That's uh 
making me wanting to go uh, want want to go to Las <laughs> Vegas there, <clears throat> and we know what what happens in Vegas stays there. So if you see it, you forget it when you leave. So you have to go back. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the uh, Ten Mile River Scout Camp and the museum there and the history of uh, camping there in New York State. Uh, if you can just give us uh, something that will fit inside the show we have here. Sure, certainly. Um can probably go into a, a fairly large amount of detail, but I'll try and keep it uh, relatively brief. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Ten Mile River Scout Museum has its own website, uh, the it's tmrmuseum.org org. Uh, there's also an archival website which has a lot of uh, paper um, uh, copies of original paper, original documentation about the founding of the camp and uh, newspaper articles from the teens and 20s and 30s uh, that it was written about the camp. Uh, quite a number of dignitaries were involved in in the formation of the camp. But I guess uh, uh, hopefully a real quick uh, uh, version. Uh, the New York City Scout Foundation used to camp in what was called Kanawaki Lakes, which is probably about 50 or 60 miles north of New York City in what's now Bear Mountain State Park. Um, they were quickly outgrowing the space, and since the National Council, at least then, was headquartered in New York City, uh, there was also a number of other councils camping in the area. So actually, uh, I guess then New York State Governor and future President Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, became part of a search committee to find uh, enough land to uh, that would con- comfortably house New York City scouting and its summer camps. You know, uh, uh, in perpetuity, I guess was their uh, what they were looking to do. Uh, they weren't able to. Their original search boundaries were within, I believe, 75 miles or so of New York City. Uh, they couldn't find anything in. The, I guess real estate is always expensive. They couldn't find anything in their price range, and they expanded a little further and about uh, 100 miles north of New York City in Sullivan County, New York, uh, the town of Narrowsburg. Uh, they bought uh, a number of plots of land through uh, some shell companies and hidden deals in order to avoid the price getting driven up too high and wound up with about a 12,000-acre uh, uh, plot of land, and which was called Ten Mile River Scout Camps. Uh, then beginning, that was the papers were signed, the deals were closed in 1927, and from that, the, uh, uh, each borough of New York, uh, the five boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx, each developed their own camp or camps uh, at Ten Mile River for the first uh, 10 or 15, actually probably for about the first 30 years, uh, scouts from New York City basically camped with their borough. And it probably wasn't until the early, the very late 50s and early 60s that that started to break down and uh, different, you know, troops from different boroughs would, would wind up in the same camp. Originally, uh, the Brooklyn camps was near Rock Lake. Uh, the surviving entity these days is Camp Kunita, of what was the Brooklyn Scout Camps. Um, Staten Island was uh, opened up uh, Camp Aquahanga. Uh, Queens opened up Camp Man. Uh, Manhattan had Camp Manhattan. And uh, uh, the Bronx had Camp Ranaqua, and most of those had subcamps or multiple camps opened up in the geographic areas. Uh, when I was a boy in the 60s, there were still about a dozen individual camps open on the Ten Mile River Scout Reservation, uh, um, each with probably anywhere from 100 to 250 boys per week. Uh, you know, times have changed. They, I believe there's currently four camps open, uh, or at least were four camps open last season, although to some extent they're, they're more super camps in the sense that their maximum 
population now is probably about 350 or so a week, um, although they don't always hit those numbers, as opposed to the old 150-man camps that would have been in existence in the 40s and 50s. But uh, 2007 is actually the 10th anniversary of the of the TMR Scout Museum. It'll be the 80th anniversary of the Ten Mile River Scout Camps. Uh, back uh, in 1997, Gene Berman, who is um, a scouter from Queens, uh, he, like I said, mentioned earlier, he runs the Swanakee Traderie, uh, became the chairman of, of what was to become the Board of Trustees of the Ten Mile River Scout Museum. He gathered a group of interested volunteers. We began with a, um, a small uh, uh, display in the main trading post at the headquarters area of the reservation. Subsequently moved into our own our own building, which we had renovated, uh, put an addition on that a few years later, and we're putting our second addition onto the building. Uh, well, I think they're, if the weather holds, they should be breaking ground uh, right after hunting season in, in that area. So we hope to have our third edition open for uh, the 2007 scout season. Wow. Do, do, do the scouts still own 12,000 acres in New York State? Uh, they owned, at one point, I think closer to 16,000. I believe it's probably more in the 12 to 14,000 range these days. There have been other, you know, additions and deletions over the years as, you know, property was either left or bought, and some lots, uh, some pieces weren't contiguous with the rest of the camp or sold off over the course of time. Uh, there's actually a history of the Ten Mile River Scout Camps uh, book that one of the other trustees, David Malotsky, uh, from the the TMR Scout Museum authored uh, um, prior to the 75th anniversary of the camp, which is available for sale. Uh, I'll plug the museum website again at the TMR Scout, uh, the TMRMuseum.org website. Uh, you know, with, which has the the history of uh, of summer camps in New York City. Wow, that's that's incredible to me. That's just a scale that that I can't imagine being from rural Alabama. Well, small town Alabama, I'll say, not really rural, but I mean, one of the oldest scout camps in in the state of Alabama is what four hundred and thirty two acres here in Florence, which is <laughs> which is Camp Westmoreland, and uh, you know that's just completely uh, is mind blowing. I have to just reset everything and think about it differently. So that must be one heck of a museum. I, that's something to put on my um, on my checklist when I get through that area. That would be a yeah, wonderful thing to come and see. It's basically open during the summer camp season, so it's basically the month of July and August up here uh, on selected weekends uh, outside of that time frame. And like I say, we do have an online uh, presence, uh, you know, at tmrmuseum.org, which uh, uh, shows a number of the exhibits in the building, you know, has um, thousands of pages of, of history and memorabilia of the camp. And as you might imagine, just collecting Ten Mile River is uh, can be quite an adventure for a camp that, that's that old and had that many different, uh, uh, well, it's called the Ten Mile River Scout Reservation and had that many different operating camps within it. Yeah, wow, that's... Uh, that's uh... That's an incredible uh, operation there. I must uh, must admit, I must be a uh, incredible rich history over uh, seventy five years of of uh, operation there. Wow! Yeah, the eightieth anniversary, as I said, it will be uh, this next summer in two thousand and seven, and I believe there's a anniversary event planned for the weekend of July fourteenth and fifteenth, or whatever the exact days are. But that weekend uh, in July, I know they're already starting the planning on that, although they don't have a lot of details yet. What kind of uh, 
collecting of national memorabilia from when uh, the BSA headquarters were based in New York City. Is there? Is that something that uh, you find people interested in, or, or did National produce it, things that uh, people collected? Well, National certainly did. Not really my area of expertise. I'm more a Ten Mile River collector and a New York State or the Arrow collector. Understanding that most of the all the most of the early insignia in general was produced, you know, when it was the headquarters was in New York City. Uh, probably more paper would carry the New York City. Uh, information on it, although a lot of the early logo information on neckerchiefs and, you know, packs and uh, anything else that would have the uh, uh, Scout logo on it would have, uh, you know, a notice that it was, you know, Boy Scout headquarters in New York City or Boy Scouts of America, you know, with a New York on the bottom. Uh, although not, like I say, not my area of uh, collecting, so I don't know a, a, a great deal about it. Right. And do you know about when that, uh, when the headquarters moved? Um, I I want to say it was sometime in the twenties, but uh, I'd have to go back to the camp book to uh, uh, to look at that a little bit closer, a little bit before my time, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> That's funny. Well, to get a little bit back more into your area of the expertise, I wanted to sort of get a get a um, a feel from you as to like what it's like to be a blue book editor and and how much of that information sort of comes to you and how much of the new information do you have to sort of go out in search of and, and keep track of because i mean i know just in new york city there's several lodges uh one for each borough and then you extend it out to the the whole of new york state i can't even imagine how do you sort of keep that uh wrangled well uh... I guess, talking original numbers, I was actually on John Pinnell's website earlier. He says he has image from 776 lodges, uh, I believe, on his website. And by my count, there were 75 lodges off from New York State at one time or another. They don't all still exist. And I guess 76, counting the uh, uh, the current or upcoming merger of uh, Lodge 19, Haudenosaunee, and uh, Loon, uh, 364, which are have become or are becoming Kitan, K-I-T-T-A-N. Uh, they had a combined uh, issue at this past NOAC, and uh, apparently just, I believe, last weekend had a fellowship, a combined fellowship weekend where they were electing the new officers for the 2006-2007 scouting year. So I guess that will be uh, another new lodge for New York, which would put it to number 76. But there are currently about 20... I believe it's 20. I'd have to look, I have to count again. Uh, 20 active lodges in New York State. Uh, that's part of the reason for the blog, quite frankly. Um, uh, by posting that, I hope to get uh, some comments, so it's a little less like a lecture and more like a conversation, so I can learn some things too. And I do have uh, you know try and develop contacts in each lodge, and I'll I give credit to people who send me information unless they've you know requested anonymity or. I've otherwise found out about it on my own as opposed to from a contact at a at a particular lodge. But, uh, you know, you'll see a few names repeating, uh, you know, on particular lodges because they're they tend to be the people who uh, who tend to feed me information. Uh, Tom Wadnola from Half Moon Lodge. Uh, uh, Brian Petrowski for, uh, gives me a lot of information from Buckskin Lodge and also from Shinnecock Lodge, both out on Long Island. Um, Frank McLean and Rob Cunningham from Tyone Lodge 95, upstate New York. A whole host of guys from uh, the western New York area. There's a tradery in Williamsville, which is on the outskirts of Buffalo, that I try and get to 
every year, although that's a little bit of a hike from here, but uh, helps me uh, helps me cover the state. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, so how did what were some of the earliest patches that you can remember collecting, um, you know, as a youth or, or whenever you started sort of getting into patch collecting? Well, I guess like a lot of people, I started, you know, just accumulating, uh, accumulating patches. Uh, you know, you get a, you know, my first hike was a, had a, you know, a district event patch, a wintery uh, uh, back in the, the demages of 1967 was my first camping trip with the scouts and got a patch for that. So, you know, like everyone else, they get tossed in a, in a, well, I guess also in the old days in a cigar box or in a shoe box and, uh, uh, the first one I distinctly remember purchasing specifically was actually at summer camp that summer, which was a uh, the 40th anniversary patch of for Ten Mile River. Uh, was the first patch I probably purchased, you know, specifically as opposed to just earning an event patch kind of thing. And once I got into the order of the arrow, I guess I got bit a little bit by uh, uh, the collecting bug. Although it's not as big, generally speaking, I, I, I for whatever reason, patch trading doesn't seem to be as big as it seems to be in other areas, you know, in New York City, and I'm not quite sure the reason for that, but uh, uh, does seem to be the case in at least some events, but there's an event here in the Northeast, the West Point Camporee, which is actually held at West Point. It's an invitational camporee, and it usually has uh, troops from, uh, I don't know, 15 to 20, you know, Northeast and Mid-Atlantic and Central U.S. states uh, that come to it, and it was always a fairly big uh, area for uh, for patch trading and went to the 1973 jamboree uh, when it was the split jamboree. My troop went uh, as a troop to the eastern version in Moraine State Park out near Pittsburgh. And uh, between the West Point Camporee and, uh, and and the National Jamboree, I was probably hooked on uh, on trading scout patches at that point. <laughs> yeah, cool. That's really cool. I remember, like, I think I never really – I mean, I, you know, I'm like you, I sort of picked up patches here and there, I'd go on a hike, pick one up or, you know, things like that. But uh, for me, it was definitely getting involved with the OA and sort of seeing just, uh, you know, people just trade patches like I'd never seen before and like, oh, this one is really cool. Let me tell you a story about this, and it's valuable for this reason. Uh, and it's it's almost impossible not – to sort of kind of, as you say, get bit by the patch trading uh, and collecting thing. So that's really cool. One th another question that we sort of always try to ask people on the show is really a two-part question. But the first one would be like, of of the patches uh, or memorabilia in your collection, what is one that that maybe stands out as something you really uh, proud of, or something that that really sort of stands above the rest? And then the second part would be something that you're sort of still in search of, a piece that isn't in your collection that that you would like to. Uh, to make a part of your collection? Um, well, I, I guess the, the patch that means the most to me, probably value-wise, isn't uh, uh, real significant, but my first Scoutmaster gave me his, uh, I don't know if it was his original flap, but uh, certainly one of an early flap from the lodge uh, that he used to wear on his, uh, his red jacket uh, that shortly after I, you know, became a member of the OA, I was his senior patrol leader, so to speak, and, uh, he uh, gifted that to me, and I guess uh, I've got nicer-looking examples and more pristine mint examples, but that one is uh, uh, probably has pride of place in the collection, although, like I say, on a value basis, it's, uh, monetarily it may not be worth too much. Um, 
probably the the, the Shishuga F1, uh, one of the red and white uh, twill versions from the lodge. But um, you know that one's got a special place for me. Uh, something that I. Uh, just I'm still trying to complete uh, my lodge collection, and there's uh, I don't know if there's any single piece. Uh, um, there are probably I don't know upwards of a hundred, maybe 150 chapter issues from uh, the various chapters in Shishuga Lodge, and I'm probably still looking for uh, oh at least 30 or 40 of them. So uh, I like to be able to tick those off uh, the list. I did come up with a couple over the last few months and hopefully might be able to shake one or two more out uh, uh, at the upcoming tradery uh, later this month. Yeah. Wow. I can't even, I can't even imagine. Like I, I still, of course, am working on my lodge set and there's a, there's a few chapter issues, but when you talk about, you know, my, my home lodge, Cascanepi 310 uh, that I took my ordeal in, um, we had like, seven chapters only you know a few of which were were ever active all at the same time it seems like and so there's probably 10 chapter issues of of the entire time that Kaskanampu was alive so i can't even i can't even imagine having upwards of 100 <laughs> just on chapter issues that's wild yeah this yeah between a couple of the chapters did event patches the in the 60s in the 50s 60s 70s uh, the individual chapters ran their own ordeals. Uh, there really wasn't a large ordeal per se, because the chapters were big enough to support uh, running their own ordeals. And at least two of the chapters regularly issued their own event patches, in addition to you know a, a flap or an odd-shaped patch uh, as chapter insignia. They had their own event patches as well. Just to give me a, a point of reference for scale, what are we talking about the membership uh numbers from uh, the heyday, let's say, uh, when you were a youth or, or when chapters ran their own ordeals, uh, what would uh, the membership number of a lodge be, say, Shishuga? Uh, to be honest, when I, in, in my early days as, as the youth, I, didn't really, I almost didn't know the lodge existed. You know, we were, I was a member of Waramog Chapter, uh, part of Shishuga Lodge, but uh, aside from a lodge conclave, the average chapter member probably wouldn't uh, you know, go to a you know wouldn't go to an LEC, a lodge executive committee, or you know pro there weren't that many lodge wide events. Uh, the chapter ran its own fellowships. The chapter ran its own service days. The chapter ran its own ordeal. Uh, the my first ordeal that I participated on a, a, as a brother, we had uh, three writ teams that each inducted about forty brothers, and that was uh, or forty candidates, and that was just our individual chapter. So on an ordeal, we probably had about 250 people. We were a fairly strong chapter, you know, about half brothers and half uh, half candidates. And, uh, um, you know, there were 10 or 11 chapters at the time in the lodge. You know, some some were stronger, you know, certainly some were weaker, but uh, the lodge membership was probably in the thousands at that point. Now it's probably, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would bet probably in the 350 to 450 range. Wow. Well, that just gives us a little bit of uh, economy of scale kind of uh, numbers there to, uh, to b b because I, I'm just speechless when you say chapters ran their own ordeals. But I can see I can see where it would be necessary almost just. Uh, well, even in the um, I guess it would be the mid to late 80s uh, when I was chapter advisor, we were running. We were running we were running the ordeal as a lodge, so to speak, but most chapters still had their own writ teams and would induct their own members uh, 
at their own writ ceremony, although sometimes, you know, a couple of weaker chapters or smaller chapters, maybe a little bit more politically correct term, uh, uh, you know, would band together and do a combined, uh, you know, ritual ceremony. But even in the, uh, in, in the you know, the mid-80s, we were probably inducting in what was then Majawat chapter uh, after a merger of Waramug and Nakawa in 1979. Uh, we were probably inducting, you know, 40 to 60 people on the average ordeal at, you know, at our chapter red site. Although we were probably inducting, uh, uh, at that point, there was probably seven chapters, I believe, in the lodge, and we were probably inducting, uh, you know, 25 to 30 percent from all one chapter. We were one of the bigger chapters. Fascinating. And you, you used a term there I'd never heard before, which was RIT team, and that means uh, oh, ritual? Oh, ritual team, ceremonial team. Right. Yeah, I don't okay. know. Maybe okay. it was a Brooklyn thing, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess it was just short for ritual team. All right. But no, my first, when I was first, I was on the ritual team. I guess that was my first job, so to speak, in the OA. And we ran uh, three separate ritual teams, uh, or three three separate ceremonies for the Saturday night uh, ordeal, just because we we didn't think it was feasible to run one for 120-odd people. Well, that that's true. And, and now, of course, the national requirement requires you to run, uh, what, less than 50 or 50? 50 is the max mm-hmm. per, per ceremony. So, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, that's absolutely fascinating to me. Ben, what other questions do you have? That pretty much covers it for me. Uh, it's, it's been really great talking with you, Bill. I appreciate you sort of taking the time uh, to speak with us. I know that you've, you've kind of listened to the show um from early on, we, we we started noticing links from your website uh, even when we were just getting started. So also definitely want to thank you for that and uh, for spreading the word to other people. Um, so, yeah, definitely just thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of the show. It's great to have you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for uh, having me. Well, thank you, Bill, and we'll uh, we'll be uh, ringing your phone uh, sometime soon, I'm sure, again. And thank you very much once again. The uh, – uh, New York OA trader, uh, Mr. Uh, Bill, uh, oh, I'm sorry for the last name, Mulrennan, is that right? Mulrennan, yep, you pronounce all the letters. All right. And his blog is at www.nyoatrader.com. Uh, it's, a, it's a worthy read, it really is. Appreciate it, Bill. Thank you very much, and have a good evening. Yep, you too. <laughs> This is Tim Hall with Cloth Talk, and we'd like to thank Bill Murinen for being with us uh, today. Uh, the OA New York, uh, let me get it right, the New York OA Trader. And please visit his uh, site at www.nyoatrader.com. And of course, we'd like to thank uh, uh, Daniel Hodge, uh, who must be freezing in Alaska these days. Uh, for the great music that we use and Daniel is responsible for all of the music that you hear here on Cloth Talk and uh, what else Ben? Well uh, even we got Chris here but even though he's here we definitely want to thank him for all his hard work on the uh, technical end me and Chris have been uh, doing a lot of work lately on the wiki uh, but I couldn't do half of what I do without uh, all of his help and assistance so, so thank Chris for everything you do That wraps it up for another Cloth Talk, guys. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. This is Cloth Talk, bringing you the history of scouting through collectibles.